blow in her face and she'll follow you anywhere. You are destroying the Constitution of the United States. May God have mercy on your souls. Good day. Yes. We could be saved if we just elected the right white man to power. That's creepy, but that's in a different category of creepy. Zitzu, zitzu, zitzu. Gary Geigers. Of course he introduced zoning laws. Okay. You know what? Don't. Yeah. The less I have to do with that game, the better. Here's my favorite part of the defense. Clodius was probably fucking his sister. Jughead, not Jarhead. I have nothing against Marines. I want to make okay. that very clear. I'd be really interested to find out what fucking truth that woman was trying to get at. And like with most episodes, I can bring it back to wrestling. Oh. Right, well, he's got other people who work for him who also do things, and, and they can okay. mutate okay. Uh, okay. human size into smaller worlds, after all. Fuck you. I still don't give a shit about getting fake property in a fantasy game. A Geek History of Time. Where we connect nerdery to the real world. My name is Ed Blaylock. I'm a world history teacher here in Northern California. And uh, this coming year, uh, virtually, uh, for the first few weeks, I'm also going to be teaching remedial English, which is going to be a new challenge. um, Because, number one, it's a variety of English I haven't taught before. and, And I now get to learn how to do it from a distance. Who are you? I am the world's worst technician. I'm Damien Harmony. Uh, this is the third time no, we've tried no, to do this. Are, I've, I've met worse, believe oh, me. But fair. You're, you're giving them competition, though, I will say. I, yeah. Whew. So this is the third time that we've tried to do this. Uh, it's now working because I literally turned the volume up on my computer. Uh, I am also a Latin teacher, which explains my inability to handle technology. Humanities major, uh-huh. ladies and gentlemen. Masters in history did not prepare me for this. Uh, but yes, I teach Latin up here in Northern California. Uh, we'll be doing it digitally as well. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking, quite frankly, for the entire year. We'll see what happens and if California behaves itself at all, ever. Probably not. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, last week right. we were talking, we left off actually uh, at a really good spot. Um, talking about the entire history, which is what the Jedi Geki movies were writing about. Yeah. Um, and and that's kind of where we left off. So. Yes. Okay. So to briefly recap, mm-hmm. so the, the Jedi Geki genre mm-hmm. uh, is Japan's version of the Western. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's as, as we discussed last week, the, the tropes don't translate perfectly one for one uh but it it shares a great deal of of kind of the psychic uh uh baggage is the word that comes to mind but the the overtones and the subtext are kind of all there it's it's the the uh, japanese version of mythologizing their own relatively recent history yes um you know as as a as a nation state um and um, it it has very similar themes throughout, and the big the big commonality is that in both the Western and in Jidaigeki stories, the protagonist is almost always a knight errant mm-hmm. figure. Mm-hmm. And the discussion that that we were that we were having last time, you know, to tie this back into nerdery again, is that that is that is the core description that we get 
uh, in the Lucas canon of the mm-hmm. of the first three films of of kind of who the Jedi were right when 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 we're in episodes four through six they're spoken of in the past tense because because they don't exist anymore um and and much like the portrayal of Ronin and samurai in Jidageki movies we kind of come to learn if if we get into the expanded universe if we get into talking about the the you know what we learned about the Jedi order in the prequel trilogy we we learn that this this view we have of the Jedi in the original trilogy is there's kind of some Vaseline on the lens is focus is a little bit soft um, and there's there's kind of been some some self congratulations some self serving kind of kind of description of of who and what how the Jedi worked mm-hmm. maybe maybe not entirely who they were but how they worked has definitely been mischaracterized. Yeah, yes. romanticized very heavily. Yes. And so the the important takeaway from from the last episode is that that all of these ideas that that we have in in the original trilogy about the Jedi are taken from how samurai look in Jedi Geki. Okay? Okay. Um and and how they are portrayed and who they are. Mhm. And I want to spend a moment right now to, to kind of open up this episode. I want to spend a moment to kind of talk about the parallels between historically who the samurai were and kind of who we see the Jedi being in the Star Wars universe. Okay. Now, when you say the Star Wars universe, do you mean the EU that is no longer canon or do you mean the movies? Yes. Okay, cool. Kind of, kind of, kind of all of it. Kind of, okay. kind of a global, kind of a global thing. Sure. So, so the 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 kind of the the primary point mm-hmm. that I that I want that I want to make about it is there are two characteristics that I think are very important for the char- for the characterization both of the Jedi and of samurai historically. The first point is that of course they are they are both warriors. Yes. Now. Um, Yoda spends an awful lot of time of episode five telling us wars do not make one great. A Jedi is not a warrior, et cetera, et cetera. That's a really hard pitch to make when every single one of them carries a particle beam sword as their badge of office. True. Uh, however, that sword is shown very early on as not only being able to, uh, dismember, uh, or at least disarm the opponent. Um, but also, uh, (laughs) but it's also that sword is shown to be able to deflect and block shots incoming. So it is at least in part a defensive use of the sword, which is being taught. Yes, Um, it is. It is both sword and shield. Yes. Um, it's the Bon Jovi sword. It is never drawn first, but it draws first blood. Nice. Thank you. Nice. Well done. Well done. Um, so, so they, but, but they are martial artists, maybe not, maybe not warriors, maybe warriors is the wrong way to characterize it, but Mm -hmm. they all have learned how to use this weapon in, in, you know, I, ideally they have learned how to use this weapon in defense of innocent unarmed people and in furtherance of justice and the Republic way. Yeah, there okay. there's a layer of but, you need to be a reluctant warrior if you're going to do this right. 
that um, the the best way to hold this sword is to hold it in stillness. Yes. Yeah. Stiffness is. Yes, I like that. that God, works. you scared me. I thought you were um, freezing up. Aggressiveness. I'm like, Shit. <laughs> you you paused for quite oh, a while. Okay. Um, yeah, no, sir, yeah. sir. Yeah, no, I apologize for that. But no, um, I, I think I think that's that's a that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of that is the the parts of Buddhism that George Lucas did actually out of the out of the the Cliff's Notes. Um, and yes, so they, they are, mm-hmm. they are, they're martial artists who know how to use the weapon like universally. Yes. Um, and they know, and they know how to use their powers in a militant, mm-hmm. in a, in a, in a confrontation. Like if there is a confrontation, you know how to use your powers to, to do that. But, but there is this emphasis, um, on, you know, being, being diplomats first, being, you know, not, not being, not being the ones to start the fight, but being the ones to finish it kind of thing. Yes. And, and so, yes. Uh, so instead of saying warriors, I am going to say martial artists, because I think that's, that's a better, that's, and, and that actually ties better into kind of my ongoing thesis going forward. Mm-hmm. So, so both the Jedi and the samurai of the Edo period were martial artists. If you were born into the samurai class, you were going to learn how to use a sword. Even when we get into the 1700s and the early 1800s, when there had not been a war in over a century, you were born into this class. You're, you're going, you're going to spend time learning martial arts because you are a member of the warrior class. So, so in both cases, they are, they are martial artists. And the other thing that's important is in the Star Wars universe to become a Jedi, you have to be force sensitive. Yes. And being force sensitive is something you are born into. And seems deeply tied to lineage, by the way, because with the exception of Obi-Wan Kenobi, everybody in episode four, five and six is related. (laughs) Like who are who are force users. Yes. It is all in the family. Yes. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Luke is meathead. Vader is <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Vader is, is Archie. Archie. No, Vader's Archie. No, Vader would have to be Archie. Yeah. No. And and in some weird way, uh No, Han is meathead. Uh and Han is Han is totally meathead. <laughs> No, but but Luke is meathead until until Lucas decides that they're not related or that they are related. Or that they are related. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's funny. Wow. <laughs> that's 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 a whole that's a whole paradigm shift. That completely changes like so many Tarkin is Edith. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's the Death Star. Oh, it's Death Star. <laughs> <laughs> When we and tried it, to blow it, up Alderaan, uh, <laughs> and in the and in the spinoff series, Vader goes and and opens his own diner. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh Lord! Oh, All right. Lord. So so, but but, 
yeah, but, but getting back to my point, we're getting off the subject. A little bit. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's an issue of you, you either are mm-hmm. Force-sensitive and mm-hmm. thus are going to be picked up by the Jedi to get trained in, in becoming this thing. Yeah. Which, you know, again, is an artifact of how Lucas wound up codifying the Jedi Order. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so okay now you're 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 one of the chosen and so you're you have this gift you're born into it and similarly mm-hmm. to become a samurai you had to be born a samurai okay and if you, and if you were a commoner if you were a townsperson or a peasant or or you know out any, anybody who was not a member of the samurai class you were not allowed to learn how to use a sword okay were caught with a sword in public or even in the in the Edo period if you were caught with a spear you you would be executed like period wow. as a commoner you were not allowed to have you did not have access to weapons um and and certainly not a gun okay. um and and yeah um and so there there was it's it's very interesting actually to get into the to the history of it there is a very remarkable point at which the ordinary foot soldier mm-hmm. in in the, in in the military forces that the Tokugawa allowed to to exist um was you know he he was an ordinary foot soldier he was a spearman or a a an arquebusier a teposhu corpsman uh, or an archer or, or whatever and and he he was basically nobody, but he had the distinction of being samurai. And there was a clear, bright line delineation between him and any commoner he dealt with. Okay. So again, force sensitive or not. Simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. And and so so being being a samurai is something you're born into and you are a martial artist. Okay. Being a Jedi is something you are born into and part of being part part of what the Jedi Order is going to do with you is they're going to train you mm-hmm. to use your abilities and that training is going to involve learning how to use a lightsaber and and you know force push and whatever other, you know, semi martial we develop. Kind of yeah. powers we've developed because of our generations of warfare against the Sith. Mhm. Um, you know, and so in, in both of these cases, it's not a job like being a Jedi is, is a role in society. Being a samurai was a role in society. Right. And the thing is historically Mm -hmm. being a samurai actually became separated from your profession for, whole swaths of the samurai class for literally several generations in order to become a doctor in, in some parts of Japan, some provinces of Japan, you had to be a member of the samurai class. Um, In star Wars, you have something similar. So when you had just the original trilogy four, five, six, they talked about how Luke was too old to be a Jedi, right? Too old to begin his training. We know at that point, Luke is let's see he was 18 in the first one so in the second one he was 
early 20s. Okay. I believe there's a three-year gap between the two Um, because there's only like a nine-month gap between episodes five and six. Yeah. Um, Yeah, uh, because by that point, he's become a commander. By that point, Leia has become a commander. She's actually taken on military rank. She knows way more about organization than she did the first time. She's not a a snarky uh, 18-year-old. And, uh, yeah, so it's it's like a three- or four-year gap. So he's in his early 20s. When you say somebody's too old to begin their training in their early 20s, it can be reasonably understood that, oh, okay, but if he was like 16, we could have gotten to him. Like, yeah. you don't think, oh, they, they kidnap babies. Um, no. no. So so no. now with that as being kind of the only canon at that time, four, five, and six, in the books, uh, most of the books take place after uh, the, the second Death Star blows up. Um, which always bothered me that they always went from the Battle of Yavin as their year zero instead of the death of the Emperor as their year zero. Because to me, that's the that's the moment where you can actually rebuild a calendar. Um, but anyway, in the books, almost everything is is after the Battle of it's Yavin. It's always about emperors for you classicist types, isn't it? <laughs> it really kind of is. Um, as opposed to you, a you battle... Gotta, you got to date it from the death of Trajan. Like, I mean, come on. Yeah. Well, as opposed come. to a battle that didn't actually lead to anything ending for another three years. Yeah. I would say the Battle of Yavin was less a paradigm. Yes, it was the first dis- blow struck, but they it built picked, another Death Star. Picked, 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 picked. Yeah, yeah. Right, fine. Whatever. So anyway, uh, so in the books, though, most of it's after the Battle of Yavin. But some of the books start coming out that are. Uh, let me think. There are a couple books. There's, well, no, none of the books that come out actually uh, uh, between trilogies are before, are are ones that mention Jedi very much before the Battle of Yavin. Um, And part of that was due to a mandate from Lucas, like, okay, y'all can license these books. They have to be internally consistent. You cannot marry Luke off. You cannot tell us what Yoda's race is. You can't kill any of the main characters. Um, there were a lot of strictures put on it. Um, once the yeah. second trilogy came out, the the Lucas trilogy, the Unholy trilogy, then they started writing books <laughs> that existed anywhere from a thousand years before to yeah um, to fifty years after. Um. Which was, uh, I, I loved it. Okay. Um, but many of them absolutely were going based on the Jedi that we saw in episodes one, two, three. So there were plenty of Clone Wars era yes. novels that came out. Uh, and they, you know, because they had a canon to draw on, they weren't doing guesswork. So when it was the after the Battle of Yavin stuff, the, the original trilogy spawned a whole bunch of books by Bantam uh, and Del Rey. And they were, they were you know, garbage, uh, a lot of them. Um, they just were, and well, it was, you know, Sturgeon's Sturgeon's law always applies. 90% of everything is crap. Yeah. So, uh, but the other 10%, this is the part that everybody leaves off of that. Mm-hmm. The other 10% is worth fighting for. Okay. Um, most of those books that dealt with the Jedi dealt with Luke struggling to find the identity of what it meant to be a Jedi. And yes. he readily acknowledges that Obi-Wan 
his training for him was incomplete. His training under Yoda was incomplete. He basically went through two incomplete trainings by two very different personalities. And now he's trying to cobble together an academy. Um, and that's that's his focus throughout those books. So even then, there is this lack of coherence when it came to the role of a Jedi, which meant that all the people that he was finding, he found Streen. Streen is this guy who's in his 50s who is kind of a, a wavy gravy type character, quite honestly, um, who... Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and he's really good at controlling weather with the Force. And then he finds a bunch of other people all of whom are much older than Luke was when he started training under uh, Obi-Wan. And it's just like, well, yeah. you, you, you dance with a partner that, that, that you came to the dance with. You know, it's like, this is what we've got. This is what we've got. Yeah. And so the, the idea that you could be a different profession was necessarily true because all these people were living in a world um, that Luke then found them and said, hey, you could be a Jedi now. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. And, and, and we can, we can kind of talk about that a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, when I, when I get to a a different kind of paradigm Mm -hmm. that, that the Jedi could have, could have followed, um, when we, when we talk about the Freifechter guilds of Germany in the early modern period, Mm -hmm. um, because that's, that's, that's a, that's an important aspect of, of kind of how, how that tradition kind of operated. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, no, you, 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 and then, and then in the Edo period, of course you did have, like I mentioned, you, you had, you had, you know, samurai bureaucrats, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who, who were government functionaries who were lawyers basically, or, or, or the Edo equivalent thereof who were magistrates, um, you know, and, and were still, Mm-hmm. Samurai and were expected to, you know, uphold Bushido, but much like Luke had to figure out, okay, well, what does being a Jedi mean in this new world? They had to figure out what does it mean to be a samurai when there aren't any wars to fight? Right. And one of the answers to that was was developed um, by a by a, a member of the samurai class in the in the seventeen hundreds. Uh, in a book entitled um, Hagakure, or uh, literally means viewed through leaves. And uh, as is kind of a trend historically, when when you have a tradition like this that has, I don't want to say died out, but but when when you have something like, uh, uh, you know, the, the samurai, Mm -hmm. uh, who all of a sudden wind up in in this position where, you know, there aren't any wars to fight. Who are we? Mm -hmm. One of the responses that always shows up is no, no, whether there are any wars to fight or not, we are, we are warriors. And so we have to harden up even more, you know, just because there's no wars to fight doesn't mean, you know, we, we can't allow ourselves to become soft. Okay. And so, you know, Hagakure actually said, if you are a samurai, to maintain your spirit and to maintain the tradition of what being a samurai means, Mm -hmm. uh, you should spend a certain amount of time every day contemplating your own death. Oh. Like, like meditate, meditate on dying on the point of a spear. Meditate (laughs) on dying in a fire or falling from a great height. 
So yeah, not only like, like not only magic. face your own death, watch the thousand ways to die and yes. put yourself in them. And and prepare yourself for that. Because your because your ancestors had to be ready at any moment to die and hesitation, you know, there's, there's a famous line, you know, about the samurai mindset, which was if you, and this is actually from Miyamoto Musashi, who I'm going to talk about here in a second. Mm -hmm. If you go into battle fearing death, Mm -hmm. you're going to die. If you go into battle without fear of death, you won't hesitate. And you'll probably live and you will, and you will survive. Yeah. And so Hagakure took that and was like, no, no, seriously, meditate on that shit. Like, like, like the Gomja bar scene, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kind of riffing on this for a moment, but, but if you, if you remember Dune, if you, have you read Dune? I'm no, trying to remember whether. I have you, not. Okay. I'm still there looking forward to your podcast on it though. Oh, Lord. Uh, yeah. If I, once, once I find a hook for it, but, um, in, in a v- very early in the book, uh, within within the first fifteen pages, uh, young Paul Atreides is is put through a test called the Gom Jabbar. Oh, so that's where you put your hand in the box. Yeah, you put your hand in the yeah. box. Step one, What's cut a hole box? in the box. Step two, What's in the box. Put yeah. your hand in the box. Oh yeah, I went. Yeah. See, I went out oh, a different direction. <laughs> but yeah, there we go. Um, and so, and, and he's told, mm-hmm. he says, what's, what's inside the box? And he's told pain. Right. And then they explain to him how it works. It's nerve induction. It, it makes your, makes you think that your hand is on fire, but it's not. And then there, and then Herbert does this really great job describing just exactly what it is that feels like is happening to Paul's hand. Mm-hmm. And, and it's really vivid. And, and, you know, when Paul pulls his hand out of the box, it's completely un, unmarred, unmarked, you know. Sure. And, um, that experience that he goes through is kind of what the author of Hagakure wanted samurai bureaucrats to imagine is no, 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 you're on fire. Think about what is it Mm going to feel like for your skin to peel away from your bones? Like, like when, when one of your eyeballs bursts from the heat, like, how is that going to feel? Like, think about that. Be prepared for that pain, you know? Um, and, and, and like, you know, ridiculously hardcore, you know, machismo. I talked about this, that, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the code of Bushido, like even during the Sengoku Jidai, when, when it was a more pragmatic kind of, you know, this is how we behave, you know, this is what the rules are kind of code. It was still like to, to, to a Western mindset, the level of no, no, you are, go- you, you need to be prepared to die was really nuts. Yeah. But then, but then later on, the code became ossified. It, it turned it turned into this thing that was no longer living, that was no longer pragmatic, that no longer you weren't actually fighting any wars anymore. And so the author of Hagakure was just like, no, no, no. It says be prepared for death. Here's how you prepare for death, man. Like that's not metaphor. That's literal. Now I want to talk know. about one of the books in Star Wars. Um, so okay. there's there's a series called the uh republic commando series uh which is just phenomenal by karen travis um and it's essentially let's look at clones and let's look at clone culture and let's look at clone commandos specifically and then there's family that forms around it and stuff like that and you get some really neat characters you eventually run into these rogue jedi like this tribe of I'm I'm gonna use the term here. I don't know a better term for it, so feel free to correct me. 
Irish Gypsy? Traveler. Oh, okay. That's the other word. All right. Traveler. I apologize for yeah. the other one. Um, if, if I can remember to scrub it, uh, and if I can do it cleanly, I will. Uh, so Traveler. Okay. So this, this okay. group of Traveler Jedi who, check this out. This is during the time that there are clones, right? Um, this is between yeah. episodes two and three. And in fact, the book series is five or six books, and it encompasses Order 66 and the Aftermath. Um, but they run into this group of Jedi travelers um, who are all married and have families. And the... Yep. Yep. And they are... Now, this is this is in the canon. And they mention, they say, oh, yes, well, there was a thousand years ago a group of ascetic Jedis who kind of became... Uh, attractive to a lot of folks, like philosophically it made sense. Um, but we never thought that they would become the mainstream as Jedi. And then they became the mainstream. So a lot of us just had to leave the order. That didn't mean we stopped being Jedi, but we don't go for that. Uh, you can't be attached to anyone because, you know, we're we're agents of love, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah. even in that book... And we're back to wavy gravy. Yeah. Uh, and even in that book, um, you absolutely have the the um, discussion of kind of what you were talking about, of, of just this tension of what does it mean to actually be a Jedi? And it's not all agreed upon. It doesn't have to be mm -hmm. these ascetic monks uh, living in this uh, ivory temple. Um, yeah. It can be folks who travel about and do good works and stuff like that. And to their credit, the Jedi didn't hunt them down as heretics either. No. So there's no, that. Correct. But uh, but there there were sects um, of Jedi that very specifically rejected the ascetic um, uh, fetishization um, that yeah. the Jedi had fallen into a thousand years prior. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Um, and and you know and the thing is. I I want to I want to hear more about those groups. Mm -hmm. Like I mean, ultimately, kind of kind of we're, we're we're jumping ahead a little bit here by saying this, but but you know what what I kind of ultimately want to call for is I want to I want to hear more about those groups because those groups don't come across as being dick bags. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um. But but before I before I get there. Mm -hmm. Um. I want to I want to talk about um, another one of the other paradigms that that you know could have been what we got mm -hmm. uh, specifically and and to do that um, I, I want to talk about uh, lineages in martial arts. Okay. Now and I'm and I'm going to start by focusing on lineage in Eastern martial arts, mm -hmm. specifically Japanese martial arts, because. Okay. This is this is one of the places where it's where it's pronounced and where I have at least kind of a passing level of, of knowledge of it. Um, and to talk about that, I've got to talk about the greatest swordsman in world history, mm -hmm. potentially. And if anybody wants to argue with me about this on Twitter, hit me up, E.H. Blaylock on Twitter. I'm ready. Bring it. Greatest swordsman in history, Miyamoto Musashi. Okay. Um, um, real quick, is this the guy that beat the shit out of a guy with an oar once? Yes. Okay, cool. Actually, he 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 clocked him over the head with the oar and then disemboweled him with a short sword. Like you do. Like you do. I yeah. Mean, well, yeah. Yeah. 
because you know samurai duel it's what sure. happens sure. um and and there's actually there's there's there are so many layers to that to that duel to that whole story it's mm-hmm. it's it's amazing so um but i but i got to talk about him because he is the founder of a school of swordsmanship uh, that is extant. It has students to this day, and there is a very clear lineage mm-hmm. of of him as the founder to his number one student and on down the line. And there are records that have been kept. There, There is a memorial on the grounds of the main school of the School of Swordsmanship in, in Japan that has the name of every headmaster of the school since Miyamoto Musashi. Oh, nice. Okay, so this so this is this is a codified lineage of teaching. Okay, and I'm going to get into why that's important here in a minute. But first, I want to fanboy about Miyamoto Musashi for a couple of minutes because sure. if you took his story and turned him into a Jedi, it would make a bitchin' series. Um, so he was uh, born in uh, 1584. Okay, uh, and at the age of 16, in the year 1600, he fought at the Battle of Sekigahara. Now you'll remember, of course, from our last episode, right. uh, that that was where uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu consolidated his power over Japan, and it was after that battle he declared himself shogun. Yes. Uh, and he was, and Tokugawa was the leader of what was referred to as the Eastern Army, and he was fighting against the Western Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, important to note, uh, Miyamoto Musashi showed up as a 16-year-old kid uh, to fight <laughs> for the Western Army. So he his his very okay. first and only so so his very first battle as as a young samurai, and his only mm-hmm. battle as a samurai right. was a defeat. Yeah, a losing effort. Yeah, he he was he was on the, the losing big time on the losing end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and now his, his life has been used as fodder for multiple movie series. There's a long running, very well respected manga series about his life and all of his duels. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a whole series. I want to say it was like in the 1920s, might've been the thirties. There was a whole novel series, uh, that's the basis of one of the movie series, uh, with Toshiro Mifune in the title role. It should oh, be noted. Uh, about his life well because I mean come on who else are you gonna get but anyway right. um <laughs> but uh but he 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 as as the 16 year old like hot-headed like murderous kid he he had serious anger management issues I mean from every source we know mm-hmm. uh even even the ones that are not massively sensationalized um, because the, the novel series, it's important to know it was written in the either 1920s or 1930s, uh, which was as Japanese nationalism was, you know, burgeoning. Yeah. Uh, and so the myth of Miyamoto Musashi was tied to the myth of Japanese identity. And of course the idea of we are a samurai nation was a really big kind of thing for sure. a population that was, you know, being introduced to you know massive conscription and and expansion of the armed forces, et cetera, et cetera. So, but but even even if we don't go with the most sensationalized versions of his life, mm-hmm. uh, 
he he lost this first battle and uh, was left as a Ronin, a wandering samurai, because okay. the liege the liege lord that he had been fighting for was killed. The family was dispossessed. The territory was given to somebody else, and so he was left with you know no income mm-hmm. um, other than you know what he could. Uh, gain by fighting duels um, and and you know eventually you know the, the goal for somebody in his position would be to try to get a position as a retainer for somebody mm-hmm. and the best way to do that is to show off what you could do and so right. fighting duels was a way of doing that yeah build your brand uh, in in kind of the same way yeah in kind of the same way that tournaments were a thing for knights in mm-hmm. feudal Europe um, and so as this masterless wandering swordsman over the course of many years, he fought in 61 duels and was never defeated. Yeah. And, uh, fighting in a duel is pretty much you're either good at it or you're dead, right? Like there's, or were there ways to lose without losing your life? There, there were, there were, I mean, uh, generally speaking, most of them were not, were not fought under the assumption that it was to the death. Um, you could, you could lose and, you know, simply be wounded. Okay. Um, and so there, there were, I mean, there were other wandering swordsmen who were duelists who didn't have an unbroken record, um, who didn't wind up in the graveyard. Um, but you know, but, but the risk was, but the risk was very high. It's kind of, okay. Similar to gladiators in Um, Rome where they didn't fight to the death necessarily, but death could happen anyway. Yes. Okay. Yes. Got it. Yeah. Good. Good analogy. Okay. Uh, most most of the time, most of the time, the duels you would be fighting would be to show who was best, mm-hmm. and that didn't require any or anybody to die. Okay. But you know, you were for fighting with real weapons, and mm-hmm. so you know, if somebody really screwed up. It wouldn't just be first blood. It would be an artery. Yeah. And you know that didn't end well. Yeah, bummer for you that you zigged. So, um, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, you should have zagged. You should have read which way I was actually going. Yep. And, well, you know, sucks yep. to be you. Bummer of a birthmark. How? Right. Um, <laughs> you know, to tie us back to the last series we did. Sure, sure. Um, but, um, and so eventually, uh, he he wound up making a name for himself because... Uh, he, he was, um, I think, I think possibly I'm trying to figure out kind of, kind of how to phrase this, but, but my own, this is just me kind of, kind of interjecting a theory here, Mm -hmm. but I think because he showed up on the scene literally at the very end of the period of active warfare, Mm -hmm. he kind of had an opportunity to look at, to look at things and go, well, you know, I'm not fighting the same fight that everybody's been fighting for the last 150 years. Okay. So I can, I can, I can do something different. And, you know, so on the battlefield, a samurai's main weapon, you, you would start out fighting with a spear. Okay. Like almost universally start out in, in hand to hand combat or from the back of a horse, you'd, you'd rush in first with a spear. Okay. You'd go back and forth with the spear until you got, 
too close to do that. And then you would draw the long sword. You would fight with the katana. Right. Uh, and then, you know, the, the, the almost ritualized description of it in the text is you start with a, start with a spear, go to the long sword, go to the short sword, then go to rolling around on the ground with a dagger until somebody's dead <laughs> is, is kind of the, kind of the description of how a fight between two armored samurai would go. Mm-hmm. And, and what he realized is I'm not actually fighting against anybody with any armor anymore. Uh. I'm not, I'm not on a, I'm, not on a battlefield anymore we're dueling right and and so in europe at at kind of around the same time a little bit earlier there became this distinction between what the germans referred to as harness fechten and blosfechten and i'm butchering the german i'm sure but harness fechten is fighting in armor mm-hmm. blosfechten is literally blouse fighting it is you're not wearing armor you're sure. you're, you're in you're in cloth clothing and so Miyamoto Musashi could be described, mm-hmm. uh, and if you want to fight with me about this on Twitter, you know where to find me, but I think Miyamoto Musashi could be described as being Japan's first Blosfeshten duelist. <laughs> like like the, fir- the first guy to come up with a system specifically built around, we're not fighting in armor here. And and the the innovation of his school was, well, you know, we carry two swords around, Mm-hmm. Why am I only fighting with one of them at a time? Well, now that's interesting because the Jedi in the books uh, in the Old Republic wore armor and didn't see any problem with wearing armor. And several of them fought using two uh, two uh, lightsabers, sometimes with a longer yes. and a shorter, uh, sometimes linked together. Yes. Um, but you had plenty who used two lightsabers. Yes. And so, and of course, and again, we can, we can look from where we we can, we can tell where it is in real life that, 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 that inspiration comes from. Mm -hmm. And that's from, uh, Niten Icho, hold on, I got to go back up and look at the, I had it in front of me, Niten Ichirayu, which is the school of swordsmanship that Musashi founded. Mm -hmm. And in it. Um, he makes in in the treatise the the book of five rings the go rin no show which is his basically instruction is the, the base the very basic instruction manual for how niten ichiryu works mm-hmm. is he says you need to learn how to fight with a long sword in one hand because historically um, the katana if you if you study straight up kendo mm-hmm. nowadays you're going to get taught you hold the sword in two hands yeah it's very because memory. it gives you more cutting authority it's, right. yeah um and what he said it was no 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 you should be able to fight with the long sword in one hand and the short sword in the other we carry two swords we should fight with two swords and so hmm. his 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 techniques all grow out of the idea that no you have a weapon in either hand mm-hmm and and you should be and and if you are truly prepared to do it there is no difference between killing one man and killing a hundred men if you are prepared to fight one guy you you are prepared to fight a hundred okay there's no there's no difference in it there is no difference in killing one man and killing ten there's no difference in killing ten men and killing a hundred thus by the transitive property there's no difference between right. killing one man and killing a hundred that's his that's paraphrasing what he actually says in the manual and and part of the key to that is you, you got to have a sword in either hand okay well, so um when <clears throat> you look at episode three 
especially. Um, uh, They do very much the katana overhand holding it uh, kind of thing. And when you look at episode two, um, you see some of that as well. But then you also see Jedi alternately using it one-handed. You see Mace Windu absolutely going one-handed against Palpatine. Palpatine sticking to two hands. You and in the the comics and in the old books, um, there's discussion of the Jedi just using it one handed. It's very rare that the Jedi yeah. use their swords two handed, which is why it looks so weird that Anakin and Obi Wan they go for it that way. Well, part of that is when when the movies were being written, there was no end in mind, right? as you pointed out in our last, in our last thing. And there was a really, there was actually a really great, I want to say Tumblr thread and I wish I could give proper credit for it, but there, there was, there was discussion from, you know, sword martial arts nerds talking about, um, if you look at the way cinematically the Jedi fighting arts developed, Mm -hmm. uh, Luke's Luke's form Mm -hmm. in episode two and episode three, is he is wailing like you mean like five anybody and six. five and six sorry yeah in 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 empire and return of the jedi yeah he is he is wailing oh yeah with that with that saber and and you know you think about it for a minute you're like that's that's a magic weapon that can cut through anything you don't have to hit that hard yeah like like the merest the mirror if you actually make contact the merest swipe is is gonna is gonna to take somebody's head clean off mm-hmm. like cauterize oh, yeah. the wound and everything you know and and but but he is i mean beating the shit out of out of vader when when they're when they're dueling yes and you're like why you know and and then you look at the the way well you look at the way anakin fights mm-hmm. in in two and three and he's kind of doing the same thing, but there's a there's a little bit more finesse. And you look at the way Obi Wan Kenobi fights, and Kenobi is like Errol Flynn. Yes, you know, and and Mace Windu is like Miyamoto Musashi. Like there is there is a furiousness to his swinging, but he's not he's not trying to overbear. He's not you know there's there's not this this sense that man i not only have to hit you i have to fucking hit you hard well so that that gets into there's uh seven different forms seven different jedi fighting forms that are codified in the books um yes and obi-wan kenobi is a master of the first one um yes and i believe yoda is a master of the third one anakin prefers the fifth one and Luke does, shockingly enough, a combo of one, three, five, largely one and five. Yep. Uh, and Mace Windu yeah. came up with the seventh one all on his own, and it's all kinds of wacky. And like uh, Dooku, yeah, and Dooku is a master of form number two. And there's a wonderful discussion. Oh, and Dooku, in, yeah, and 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 Dooku is a classical fencer. Yes. <laughs> Speaking, speaking, speaking as a Western sword nerd, what's mm-hmm. really fascinating about it is you look at one, three, five, and and Vapod, mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, that's that's Kendo, that's that's another variation on Kendo, right? And like, I don't know how you're doing, I don't know how you're doing, yeah, 
Yaido with an energy weapon, but you're somehow doing Yaido with an energy weapon. And, and so much of it is, is, um, very clearly Eastern inspired. And then you look at form two and you're like, did you just step off of an Olympic fencing strip? Yeah. Like you're, you're handling that thing literally like, like that, that is in fact, like, like all of your moves are, are taken straight out of, you know, classical sport fencing. Yeah. Which like in a re- in a sword fight in the real world would not be very effective. But when you're dealing with, you know, a weapon that can kill with the merest touch. Okay. Yeah. You're fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. A repost you know, will kill people. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, and, and it's like you studied, everybody else is doing, you know, kendo and, and you studied small sword mm-hmm. like wait <laughs> and 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 so what what i find interesting and and it's it's good that this comes up here because it, it goes into kind of where i'm going with this um part of the way that a samurai mm-hmm. would would make a living if he became a ronin was again he needed to as you said build his brand and fighting duels was a way to do that. And the really best way to build your brand was to find the number one student or the master of another school mm-hmm. and kick his ass and prove that your, your, your style was better than his. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's what Musashi was setting out to do was to establish that Nuten Ichireu was the preeminent school of swordsmanship. And in, in the process of doing that, he fought 61 duels, was never defeated, and eventually he did, in fact, land himself a job mm-hmm. as head sword instructor, as, as a, yeah, head sword instructor to the Tokugawa family, to the shogunate. Okay. Uh, and he then, uh, seven days before his death, uh, he passed on the scroll and the wooden sword that are the two badges of, I'm going to call it apostolic succession, but it's, it's discipleship. Basically he he passed those two onto his number one student and said, I'm not going to pass this on to my son. I'm passing it on to you because you're, you're the best one to actually carry on teaching this art. Okay. And, and that's how that lineage developed and so the the Niten Ichirayu lineage is not a blood lineage it is it is it is notable for the time period because at the time it was well you know I've developed this school I'm you know lead instructor to this family and so you're my son and so I'm going to pass this on to you because that's how our society operates mm-hmm. Musashi said no no I'm not handing this on to my son I'm giving this to my number one best student who I think is going to be best for the style of swordsmanship. Interestingly, the first student tried to say, no, no, I shouldn't do this. You're his son. And the son said, no, no, you're better for it. You do it. That's cool. Um, yeah. And, and so, um, so, so what, what this kind of leads us into, and, and you're talking about the seven different styles of lightsaber combat. Mm -hmm. There is a historical precedent for the idea of, a category of people, a class of people having these master student relationships, these master disciple relationships Mm -hmm. getting, getting passed down from master to disciple to 
secondary disciple to great grand disciple. Sure. You know, uh, with, with master being, you know, I, I now, I, as your teacher now recognize you as being a master of this art and you are qualified to now pass on the teaching of this on to other people. Mm-hmm. Now, um, in, in some of the expanded universe canon, we see this happening. Um, the, the tales of the Jedi, I want to say tales of the Jedi comic book series. Mm-hmm. Uh, my kids are currently shows. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause they actually um, want to play West end game star Wars. So I said, okay, 4,000 oh, years before the movies. Are... Yeah. And you know what? Um, yep. it's really quite remarkable to me. Um, so the, the, the Ulick, Ulick Keldroma. Yes. Had to, had to look up the character is, is, you know, one, one of the central figures in that, in that series. Uh, and, you know, he and his brother and K-12 fellow students drama. are yeah. all, all K, you know, you look in K are all studying under their master and they're on this planet. Yep. And, Osses. you know, their first, first job as knights is they get sent off to Onderon to, Mm-hmm. Yeah, on Ossus. They get sent off to Onderon to, you know, deal with this rebellion and they wind up, you know, running into the Sith and, you know, yeah. the whole saga happens from there. But so so in, in that time period, mm-hmm. we see the Jedi operating in this master disciple kind of kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. There is this whole genre of martial arts films mm-hmm. built around the idea of rival schools and competing lineages like like there's 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 a whole set of tropes associated with the old master getting old and and dying and you know choosing one instead of the other one and, right. and the other one going off and saying well you know I'm really a master anyway and I'm going to keep teaching and there being you know and there being this 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 conflict and this rivalry. And I mean, and there's, there is so much storytelling material. Oh yeah. In this, in this archetype. And you don't have to turn it into, there's this single overarching monolithic organization from the top down yep. that, you know, that, that, you know, kid slash adopts children from their parents at, you know, the age of three you know, and, and turns and tries to, tries to, tries to turn them into monastics. You don't have to do any of that. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can still have wandering knight errant, knights errant, you know, and, and, you know, in that, in that case, in that part of the timeline, mm-hmm. there, there is kind of, there, there is kind of a central decision-making body for Jedi as a group, but they basically send word out, Hey, we need something dealt with, send some of your students to go do this. And that's kind of the extent of it. And, yeah. There's and, a conclave. And, and there isn't... It's less a, less yeah, a, yeah. Uh, a, a temple. And, and, and there are, there are different annex temples. There's, you know, different libraries and stuff like that. And there's people that are like, Oh yeah. yeah, we're the ones who take care of this. We're the ones who take care of that. We're the ones who take care of this. Like there's, yeah. there's so much more loosely confederated and tied together by virtue of their abilities more than anything else. And a healthy respect for each other, except of course when the Sith pop up. 
Yeah, or or when one of the Jedi goes dark, at which mm-hmm. point and and the thing is, and the thing is, um, there's 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 historical precedent for that. Mm-hmm. In a in in a way, I mean, of course, nothing is one to one, but if we look at the way that Japanese martial arts developed mm-hmm. since uh, the end of the Sengoku Jidai, uh, you know, we have. You know, uh, uh, schools that were we. This I I am. You know, I I'm I'm part of the lineage of this particular school of spear fighting. Right. You know, and and part of what Musashi did was he went out to show that he could defeat anybody using any weapon. He fought against spear guys. He fought against uh, 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 chain guys. Mm-hmm. Like there was there was uh, one. One of the duels where where you know he very nearly wound up you know losing his life was against a guy armed with a kusarigama, mm-hmm. which which was a a chain with a sickle on one end. Right. And you know and and he found that okay um I I need basically he had to ditch everything he thought he was going to have to do uh you know and completely completely change his tactics in the middle of the fight because he lost his sword. You know, and and so I mean, it's 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 it's, and and there's and within the canon of that story, mm-hmm. there are all of these examples of all of these different stories that could be told. Um, there's there's a whole portion of Masashi's life, you know, several years of his life in which he was on the run from an entire school of swordsmanship that wanted him dead. Wow. Uh, because, because he, he had insulted the, the master of the school and then he had, uh, uh, beaten the shit out of one of the main students because they, they had refused to duel him with steel. So he, so he dueled with a wooden sword and just, just beat the daylights out of, out of one of the lead students. If I'm remembering the story, right. Mm-hmm. And then these guys, and then he, he, they challenged, they challenged him and, um, they, they tried to set up an ambush and have, you know, a dozen of them, you know, attack him at once. And he intentionally, and he knew they were going to try to do it because like, obviously, and so he intentionally showed up late, pissing all of them off <laughs> and had basically, and, and showed up from a direction they didn't expect and, and, like there's there's all kinds of stuff that could be said about Musashi also using psychological warfare to his advantage, mm-hmm. uh, um, showing up late and being blatantly, blatantly but passively disrespectful. Okay. Like like actually looking anybody in the eye and going, "Hey, hey, yeah, fuck you." <laughs> he didn't do that, but but he would show up, you know, picking his teeth and kind of like, "Oh yeah, oh geez, I'm sorry, am I late? Oh right, hey, right," and just like. Like his his very his his most famous very last duel. That's actually one of the things he did. He showed up something like two hours late. Uh, partly uh, because he knew that the sun would be setting and he could position himself to have the sun behind him. I remember this one. Yeah, I thought it was but he also, showed up at dawn and picked his position so that. Either way, yeah, the sun's uh, yeah yeah. Well, but but the other thing was that by showing up that late. His his opponent was furious. Right. I mean, I mean, by by all accounts, just absolutely hermitile. Mm-hmm. 
And and by doing that, it was like, well, see, I already have an advantage because you're so angry. You're not going to be thinking about how you're going to fight. Mm-hmm. And and, you know, he took the time to craft himself a wooden a wooden sword out of an aura that was, you know, longer than his opponent would expect. And, you know, I mean, right. Was, yeah. So but um, but, you know, and and again, just just with the stuff we're talking about right now, there's all of these kinds of stories that could be told using the Jedi. Well, and many or having having this kind of go ahead. I was going to say many are told uh, of these stripes in the books that are no longer canon. And what I think is advantageous there is that the people yes. who currently own the uh, intellectual property that includes the no longer canon books is they have obviously been drawing very heavily on those stories to do the most recent trilogy. They've taken the dynamics and put them into their films. They haven't yes. necessarily taken the names, yes. but they absolutely 100% are clearly reading the books. Oh yeah, well, because okay, because because here's the thing. You can you can go with what Lucas decided to do with with who the Jedi were and how how he codified them. Um, or you can go with this other set of options that gives you so much more flexibility and allows you to tell so many different stories mm-hmm. because like when you, when you decide that, okay, this character is a Jedi, that means that their childhood was spent at the temple on Coruscant. Right. It means that they're, you know, it like, like, like you take so many character options away and you take so many plot line options away. Yep. And and you turn every Jedi into a member of this organization that we know is rife with groupthink, mm-hmm. and and you know and anybody and and they do come very close to calling anybody who disagrees with them a heretic. I mean, they don't hunt them down, but we know. Well, Anakin is from, threatened with expulsion in the middle of a yeah. fight for wanting mm-hmm. to save uh, a woman. Yeah, you know. Well, you know, because he likes her boobies. And well, and he's, he's going not, off mission. In, and in, not, in fairness, he is yeah. not doing right by the mission. Um, and he's and he says, "I don't care." And it's like, "You will be expelled from the Jedi Order." And he's like, "I don't care." Um, and yeah. the only thing that stops him from doing it is, uh, "What would she want you to do?" Yeah, you know. So the, you know, a little emotional manipulation never hurt anyone. Because Amadel, well, yeah, because Amadel was a badass. Yeah, she was. So, but yeah, you do. Like, that is definitely clearly, a story. Clearly, that can be told. I took after her mother. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, and and so so I guess what they're they're like literally there is a real world example mm-hmm. of of how this could have been different. Um, and and I think it is a. It's gonna sound more pejorative than I mean mm-hmm. it to be. I don't. I don't mean it to be, you know, rainbows and puppies. But but I don't mean it to be as indicting as this is gonna sound. But okay. I think I think it is a failure of. I think it's a failure of Lucas's imagination. I agree. To consider to consider a universe in which the Jedi are of peace and justice. And they are not 
connected directly to the government. Does that make sense? I want you to unpack that more. You're saying the, that that's a failure. Up, okay. Yes. I because he because he 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 wound up going in the direction in in the prequels, which is which is when I think, frankly, mm-hmm. everything to do with the way the way the Jedi and I wound up, uh, uh, got screwed up mm-hmm. when when he started trying to write the, the prequel trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, because he didn't he, he didn't think about second and third order results of the decisions he was making. Right, and so. The, the Jedi Order is a singular monolithic organization based on Coruscant. Literally within the Jedi Temple is literally within sight of, and they act repeatedly throughout the prequel trilogy as the agents of Republic government. Yes, and I think because of his own worldview his own background where he came from when he grew up etc 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 i don't think lucas could conceive of anybody doing the kind of things that jedi geki heroes did without being cops and without being self-appointed not not directly under the government control yeah it's possible yeah you know, and I and and the thing is, you can still have because because historically speaking, that's not who the heroes of Judaiki would have been. Mm-hmm. You know, w- within the context of of the actual culture in which all of that happened, mm-hmm. anybody anybody who knows the anybody who grew up in Japan and essentially knows the context understands that. You know, contrary, like you pointed out in the last episode. You know, contrary to the lawlessness of the Western, right? When when a Jidageki hero shows up, he's not showing up because he's a guardian of peace and justice. Because uh, there is no peace and justice, he's showing up because something in the system has broke down. Mm-hmm. And so, as an outsider, because he is a Ronin, because he okay, is, I see where you're going. Yeah. You know, brought into this set of circumstances, he's he's coming from the direction of having to fix the system because mm-hmm. we're dealing with an East Asian culture that's like Confucianism is the beginning and the ending of this stuff. Mm-hmm. He has to he 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 is put in the position of having to be the hero to fix some way in which. We have a Confucian dystopia. Mm-hmm. Okay, whereas so Lucas has them. He is he yeah. is explicitly an outsider, right? Which you can kind of get to a yeah, bit, and, and in and in Lucas's, you can kind of get to a bit in episodes four, five, six, but in episodes one, two, three, it's very clear that they are insiders, one hundred percent. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, ultimately they're they're yeah they they you know there's in in the Clone Wars there's there's uh, and again this is after you know Lucas is direct one of the ways that that kind of the the you know canonical now expanded universe does does some great stuff with this mm-hmm. there are a couple of places in the Clone Wars where there are discussions amongst Jedi of okay wait 
are we doing this for the Republic? Or are we doing this for the Jedi Order? Right. Because because we're not. We've got to be aware of why we're doing this. You know who who's whose goose are we trying to save from getting cooked here? Sure. Um, you know, and to their credit, the writers try to try to actually you know depict Obi Wan and Mace Windu and, and and kind of Anakin, even though they kind of treat Anakin like no, no, the grown ups are talking. <laughs> but but when they when they have these discussions, it's still like okay, you know, what's what's the moral thing for us to do here? Mm-hmm. You know, we've we've yeah. got to you know, and and you know because they are they are the good guys, even though they're systemically not. Yeah, they they're serving uh, the yeah. republic the whole time too. They're they're serving specifically the republic. Um like they are there to keep the keep the order, quite honestly, and to protect their own. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it and it isn't and it isn't and the thing is when when Obi-Wan tells Luke in episode 4 of Guardians of Peace and Justice, mm-hmm. that is a self-congratulatory, self-exculpatory kind of description because what we see in the Clone Wars is, I mean, they do genuinely believe that the best thing for the majority of people in the galaxy is for the Republic to stay a thing. But what they're really acting in defense of is the Republic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, we're never... We're never shown any any point at which the Republic is actively bad. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb there. Um, I mean they they accept the the delivery of you know hey ready made army of you know disposable biobots yeah which which is which is you know deeply fucking sketchy. I'm not gonna lie about that, but but we don't see them behaving. In, in a in an actively fascist you know there's we don't we don't see any direct cases of there is some kind of racism speciesism you know the republic must expand we have to conquer new territory you know we don't see any any of that kind of shit going on mm-hmm. so the republic is basically is basically pretty benign and we can kind of believe that okay you know the ideals of the republic are basically you know good ones but the fact is still that, like, you know, we never really hear what is it exactly the separatists are like, you know, trying to get away with doing. Like, yeah, why are they separatists? We just know they're trying to break away, and that's a bad thing. And we're like, well, okay, but why? I mean, why are they trying to break away, and why is that a bad thing? Like, in the U.S., in the American Civil War, mm-hmm. Or as I'm, you know, going to refer to it from now on, whenever I teach it in U.S. history, uh, the slaveholders' rebellion yes. of 1861-1865. We know because we've talked about it ad nauseum in this podcast, at the very least, why it was that those states in the South were were trying to were trying to break away. It was states' rights. The right to what? Mm-hmm. And the answer is all people. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, that's pretty shitty. In 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 the case of the Jedi supporting the Republic, it's like, well, you know, the Republic operates under democratic principles. Well, there is there is a good deal of rot written into Episode One, um, that you know the courts take longer than the Senate, uh, that the Chancellor has no real power, Chancellor Valorum. 
his name, by the way, is Finis Valorum, which means the end of honors. Um, the uh, the fact that uh, the Jedi that came. Oh, that 100% that, was. That cannot. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, the fact that uh, Qui-Gon Jinn says flat out, uh, you know, we're not here to uh, rescue slaves. And also, you know, Obi-Wan or somebody else was like, oh, there's still slavery out here. And she's like, yeah, the Republic doesn't fucking get out here. This is Tatooine, dude. Um, like yeah. there there are signs of internal decay and rot um, in uh, incompetence, uh, but not malice. Yeah, um, not active yeah. malevolence. Yeah, uh, there, there yeah. is certainly it's it's collapsing under its own weight, um, kind of aspects to it. But you're right, yeah. it's it's not. Yeah. Uh, they're not jackbooted thugs. Yeah, no, so. it's it's a it is a fa- it is a system in the midst of failure. Mm-hmm. And so the Jedi, and so I mean, over the course of the Clone Wars, what we see is the Jedi trying to prop up a failing system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, as somebody who's involved in that conflict, obviously, uh, years later, Obi-Wan Kenobi is going to characterize himself as having been, you know, somebody who, you know, fought the good fight to try to, to, to defend the right cause. Right. But, like, you know, you fought in the war. How reliable of a narrator are you? You know, and, and I'm not, you, you know me, we've had this discussion outside of the podcast. I'm not one of the people who who wants to, you know, jump on Obi-Wan Kenobi as, as you know, being, you know, a villain in hero's clothing or anything. Right. But, like, even even I'm, like, you know, I'm, I'm an Obi-Wan fanboy. I'm going to admit it. And even I have to be like, yeah, yeah, are you sure? Like, dude, really? Mm-hmm. You know, you can do better than that, man. Come on. Be, be a little more intellectually honest. And and so and and again, that's reflecting who it was who was writing all this shit. Yeah. And that's and again, that comes back to, um, you know, Lucas couldn't couldn't envision a paradigm differently from that, even though the the very sources that he was cribbing all of these ideas from are based in real world history. Mm-hmm. That, that could have provided him with a more vibrant, more, more vari- varied, more, more entertaining set of options. Yeah. Uh, and, and if you just look at the, I mean, the real world history, like as I'm talking about in this episode, you just look at the real world history of, you know, how martial arts knowledge has been passed from master to students for the last 300, 400 years. Mm-hmm. It, it, it shows that, no, no, seriously, there, there, there is this model wherein people who have a talent can be trained and can be taught a code of behavior and can be taught... You know, all of this stuff that we learned that, you know, I mean, the, the reason ultimately, why do you need to have a Jedi Order? You need to have somebody training Force users because if they don't get trained, they can be a danger to themselves and others. Like, yeah. why, why, why do you need to train young wizards? Well, because if they don't learn how to use their powers, they're going to hurt people without, yeah. you know, whether they mean to or not. Okay, so you got you to gotta train them in ethics about how to use these abilities, and then you've just got to teach them how to control it. Okay, fine. So, so to Lucas, that then went into, well, you know, 
there's going to be this this where, where I'm going to write it with a centralized authority. And and I got to say, part of my disappointment in that is, again, so many aspects of the first three movies mm-hmm. are clearly countercultural. And then in the prequels, he he like he fucks all that up. Oh yeah, they're one hundred percent culture, like within the dominant he, culture. Yeah, you know, and 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 there's probably some kind of metaphor if, if I could if I could you know uh, 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 distill it down, I could probably come up with some great aphorism to explain kind of how that's that's a metaphor for what happened to the whole baby boomer generation during the 80s but you know i don't know um but you know so so there's this there there yeah so that's that's kind of where where i am with 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 talking about or or you know every every time i start thinking about this i come back around to mm-hmm you know, again, being a, a, a Western martial arts nerd and knowing a bunch of people who are Eastern martial arts nerds, like this, this was not the, this was not a necessary paradigm. Right. Yeah. This this was not, this was not an inevitable thing. Like, well, you know, if you're going to do this, then you have to do it this way. Like, no, if you, if you even paid attention to the context of the movies that you're cribbing all of this from mm-hmm. again you could have gone elsewhere kind of, with it you, you could have gone elsewhere with it yeah 